0: Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello and welcome. For this episode, we're beginning to look at the topic of automation and education. This is the first of three interviews that we're putting out over the next few months with different experts, all of whom are interested in the rise of artificial intelligence and other forms of automated decision making. So today we're starting with a conversation with Professor Chris Gilliard. Chris is an English literature professor from Macomb Community College in Detroit, and he's a scholar who's widely recognised for his critique of surveillance technology, digital privacy and the problematic ways that digital technologies intersect with race and social class. Chris regularly writes big-ticket pieces in publications such as Wired, The Washington Post and The Chronicle of Higher Education, as well as the daily stream of tech critique that he puts out under his Twitter handle, at Hypervisible. Chris writes around a number of issues, including education, so he's an ideal person to talk with about the automated forms of surveillance that are coming into our schools and colleges. In this interview, we talk about a number of technologies, from remote online exam proctoring to the growing trend of putting virtual assistants such as Alexa into classrooms. For Chris, all these technologies need to be seen as surveillance technologies rather than learning technologies. So first off, I ask him to remind us why the idea of surveillance technology in education is definitely not a welcome development.
1: The big thing is that almost every technology that we could name is really invested in, in tracking, tracing, monitoring in some way or another, capturing um, students and making assumptions about what can be done with that data. That in some way, forwarding the assumption that metrics equal truth and that you know surveillance is a form of safety or care or that even it's effective in doing particular tasks. Um with very little evidence, often that that's actually the case, you know whether that be remote proctoring or or systems that monitor uh, students in terms of, you know, looking for violent behavior or bullying or things like that. Um, that there is often very little evidence that these things work, but that they're so tied up in in this notion that um, watching. Uh, that again a- accumulating or amassing data particularly through cameras and microphones um but also through data such as you know kind of watching people's internet activity is in some way uh, a learning process right or a teaching process and really i mean it in uh, often it's surveillance and also it's very carceral right that there are lots of ways in which these mechanisms are the same mechanisms that are, are used on incarcerated people or are used on people we treat as suspects, uh, potential criminals, things like that.
0: So whenever I talk to historians of education, they always say, well, you know, this has been going on for centuries. Schools have always been carceral places. They've always been about watching and surveilling. So I guess the the, the, the pushback to everything you've just said is what is new here? Is it just a case that this is the same same shit, different bucket. <laughs> it's an Australian way of putting it. Old wine in new bottles. I mean, what's new and what's the same?
1: Well, I'd say two things to that. Um, one, that to to assert that it's the same is not a very good defense. <laughs> right? So, I mean, um, so that is true, uh, again, with, my, with many of these technologies uh, that I critique. It is true that what they do is perpetuate uh, longstanding practices. But it, often those longstanding practices are discriminatory, harmful, carceral. But the other thing is that a lot of these technologies enable a scope and scale that heretofore was not possible, that they not only enable or perpetuate existing issues, but they ramp them up in a way that previously was not possible. You know, so I will, I will use uh, remote proctoring as an example. And so when you critique remote proctoring, you know, invigilation, what many people will say is, well, is it so much different from just having people sit in a room, a proctor walking around? And so it is, it's different in a lot of meaningful ways, but also, I mean, we should probably interrogate that practice in itself, right? That I don't necessarily think that of that as good pedagogy either. And so, you know, I I bristle a little bit when people say, well, this is not new. Because uh, my critique is not that it's new. Uh, My critique (laughs) critique is is based on the problems, the systemic problems that it perpetuates.
0: But it is also interesting to think about that there are new things around the edges. So you've got different actors coming in and actually kind of setting the rules of the game. As you say, you've got these different modalities. So certain modalities are privileged: the camera, the audio capture, and you've got this mass of big data and then what's done with it. So I agree with you. I think one of the... really interesting pushbacks is to say yes it is the same and the same was terrible the first time around (laughs) but i don't think we can let them get away with it because there are new things happening around the edges as well there there are different layers aren't there
1: yeah that's a that's a great point Uh, you know so again where this data goes what's done with it by these companies the types of investment structures that are involved in in pitching these technologies you know and the scale of the harms so i don't necessarily agree that we should have these types of exams it's far different for students to sit in a classroom than it is to insist that they put what essentially is malware on their on their devices or that they reveal the inner workings of their household, including, um, you know, things like who you might be living with, where you live, disability, all these things. Right. Um, that we insist that they reveal those things in order to uh, participate in an educational system.
0: And there's the issue of labor. The student is suddenly doing a huge amount of labor themselves in a very kind of fraught situation. Let, let's deep dive into this online proctoring then because this is a fascinating technology. What really interests me is how this technology actually kind of fits with a lot of people. A lot of people think that it, they are being convenienced, that, that this is a good thing. I mean, this has found a kind of a ready audience. Why do you think this is?
1: Well, it's a it's a simple solution to a complex problem. You know, and one of the things uh, that I typically point to is the ways that these systems existed before, but they really took off during the pandemic. And I understand that a little bit. You know, two years ago, as many things are moving to remote, including a lot of educational uh, sites and systems, people were looking for quick solutions to problems. And so people give exams and they would say, well, you know, we have to have some means of proctoring them. And so this seems like a, a, a ready-made solution. Uh at the time people weren't necessarily aware of a of many of the issues that were that these systems presented, right? Whether that's uh facial recognition or face detection that doesn't work on a lot of faces, or whether we think about the degree of uh access, um, you know, what kind of bandwidth, for instance, or or what kind of machine or, you know, device. You would need in order to properly run this or the assumptions about uh, who has a quiet space and who has a space that's devoid of distractions or again to think about things like eye tracking and the suggestion that if your eyes move during uh, the course of an exam that somehow you're dishonest right that all the ways that uh, what's coded as normal often is very harmful because it places anyone outside of that for whatever reason labels them as dishonest or potentially dishonest you know things like that so some of these things people didn't know at the time uh, but we're two years in and so that excuse to me is gone but what what changing it would require often is it would require people to radically alter the way they do certain things and the assumptions they make about what teaching and learning are many people are not ready to do that and, and, it, and I don't want to dismiss it. So in, in, in some cases, it would require tremendous amount of investment on the part of instructors. But m- my argument is that if a technology cannot be deployed safely and doesn't work for a, a segment of people, then it shouldn't be used at all. And so if you can't have a non-racist or non-ableist proctoring system and non-discriminatory proctoring system, it's my assertion that you can't. If you can't have that, then you shouldn't have it at all.
0: But then you got the pushback from the proctoring vendors and even some of the universities who are trying to deal with mass numbers of students that it's only a few thousand students that are being disadvantaged. There are millions that are not complaining. What's the problem? And you've got that kind of mentality. (laughs) It's really tricky.
1: (laughs) I, you know, I just can't get down with that. I, I mean, I, you know, I don't know what would be a number, um, so to, so to me the number is 0 right so you know right but i don't for someone who would make that claim um how many people is an acceptable yield when you're thinking about people who are being discriminated against uh you know is it 5 is it 10 is it 15% i i don't know the answer i mean my my answer is 0 and you know it also uh misunderstands the number of people who fit into certain amongst these categories right so that's Black and brown students, disabled students, students who are poor, right? Anyone who lives in a, in a particular situation or system where they don't necessarily want to subject themselves to to these because of what it might force them to disclose or reveal. And even in the, in the case where there are live proctors, you know, you again have that, that issue where there's a very sort of creepy way in which uh live proctors have access to people's homes in a way that makes many people um uncomfortable and i think compromises their safety sometimes and you know we're not even going to talk about i mean we haven't even talked about the ways in which some of these some of these technologies are insecure in that they pro they pose sort of a, a technical or cyber or cybersecurity risk
0: yeah Absolutely. And then the idea that this technology is based on malware, I think, has been widely, widely made. But it's interesting to think about the values and the politics of something like this. Particularly, as you say, this is software that's been around for a long time and actually originated, I think, in the software industry, you know, where they're accreditating Microsoft engineers. So if you were taking a Microsoft exam, you could be proctored, which is a very different understanding of education and, and the position that a student is in or a test taker is in. And, and you get these values of academic integrity and, you know, making sure no one's cheating and all which is a very different set of values to the more kind of equity focused, social justice focused values that you've been talking about. Yeah. And so it's a clash of politics, isn't it? Rather, as well as the, the technical problems.
1: Absolutely. People don't
0: think about this technology as having politics.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, I, I think we really need to investigate some of the ways we think about um, testing and learning and teaching. and And so... I teach writing, for instance, and any good writer will tell you that it's a collaborative process, that uh, we have this myth often that people sit in a room or at a coffee house by themselves and write some text, and I'm here to tell you that that's not how that happens, right? I mean, not good writing, um, but also when we think about, so if I go to a uh, an attorney or if I go to a doctor, even if I go to a mechanic. You know, often when you're uh, there in that building or that office or that meeting, they might do research on their computer right there in front of you. So if I go to my doctor and I'm presenting them with a thorny health issue and they look it up right there, I don't think, oh, they don't know what they're doing. I think, oh, they're being very thorough and I'm glad they're doing this. And, you know, attorneys review case law all the time. I mean, there's on and on and on, right? So this idea that we sit in a room and are scrutinized and that any knowledge that we don't possess on hand at that moment within our brains is somehow invalid or cheating, I think, is not really uh, how my experience of the world is and and how um, professionals operate out in the world. But somehow we're, we're stuck with this idea about testing, right, and in the ways that it somehow proves people's knowledge.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get the tech industry off the hook altogether it's not just that we have a kind of 19th century system with you know 21st century there is a, there is certainly an element of that just moving on to a second technology an automated technology that might seem a lot more benign you've also written about the kind of the rise of personal assistants and chatbots. you know alexa in the classroom so these are automated agents that direct teachers and students nudge people to make the right in some ways this seems like a much more friendly fluffy version of technology i mean
1: what's the problem here <laughs> i mean You know, I I I would start off by saying that it's it's my assertion that Amazon as a company is a deeply destructive and harmful agent in our society. You know, whether that's the environmental impact, uh, the way they treat their workers, uh, the way that it's enriched mostly one individual, you know, or a small number of individuals to the detriment of a large chunk of society. But also Amazon is not... I think more people are catching on, but the extent to which Amazon is a surveillance company again is is often understated. That everything you do, sort of, uh, with uh, with Amazon, is tracked, you know, traced, cataloged, subjected to analysis. I mean, ultimately, to further enrich Amazon and 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 sell more product. So the idea that they, that we would put these in hospitals, in classrooms, in you know people's bedrooms and dorm rooms. I think is really troubling because it takes what is meant to be a, a very private and intimate space. Um, it's a space where people should feel safe to talk about things, uh, in ways that, um, where they're not worried that, that what they say may, may come back to haunt them, you know, whether that's, I mean, and so there, and I don't mean in any kind of uh harmful way. Right. So just for instance, um, uh, we might think about information that they may not want to reveal to corporations or to law enforcement or to ICE or even that worry that an algorithm might improperly understand what they've said and put them on a list for something. So I don't think of these as friendly systems. I mean, they're, they're va- basically uh, against surveillance and in ways that take people's, you know, data or their content or their discussions and subject them to processes that people don't have any control over, and they may never know what the results of that are. Um, but I I, I can I, I I feel pretty safe in saying that some of those are are, are maybe ways that people might not um, have anticipated and would not be uh, beneficial to them. I was
0: gonna I was gonna say that this technology in particular does raise this issue of informed consent. We talk about informed consent a lot in education. I'm not sure anyone understands what they're informing or what they're consenting to when you put a lecture in the classroom, the teachers, the principals, the students. I'm not sure it's possible to, to be kind of fully informed.
1: No, I mean, uh, I think wired, um, and, and reveal, uh, co, and uh, did a, a recent study on the extent to which Amazon does not protect people's data. Um, it's really, uh, it's really kind of a blockbuster piece. I mean, I, I encourage everybody to go read it. Um, Let's just say the, you know, the 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 essay asserts that the the data protection policies at Amazon leave a lot to be desired.
0: But what's also interesting about Amazon is they are a multi-billion dollar corporation and they're always looking to extend their reach. And with a lot of technology in education over history, there's often corporations see schools in particular as a as a kind of early loss leader. You can put tech in schools and kind of bake in the logics into the minds of students, into the minds of teachers, and then you can move into the home and You've written a lot about Amazon Ring, for example, and it's interesting to see how the home and, as you say, hospitals, schools, public spaces become infused with these same sorts of technologies. Do you see that kind of creep? Schools are just one part of a much larger business plan.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, Amazon has not been shy about their goal of, of invading. I mean, that's not the word they would use, right? They have not been shy about invading every aspect of our lives, right? Um, they're trying to go into healthcare. They're into grocery. They're trying to get into schools and education. They are in our home. Uh, they have all kinds of agreement with law enforcement. Um, in the and they also in that segment of healthcare, they're also promoting wearables. Right. So in addition to cameras everywhere, there are biometric devices that they uh, they sell. And you know there was a recent piece in Business Insider talked about some of the the patents that they filed and so disclaimer not every patent becomes a product but the level of invasions for some of these things whether that's uh, drones that will fly around your property and take pictures or uh, adding uh, more biometric sensors to ring including uh, you know facial recognition face detection and smell detection which I mean as far as I know doesn't currently exist but they filed a patent for that as well. So the the essential sort of desire of the company is to cover everything uh, in in sensors. I mean, it's my assertion that in a lot of ways what they're trying to do to the outside world is the same thing that they do to workers and warehouses. Yeah,
0: their patents for factory technology, I mean, the kind of the cage patent that came out a couple of years ago so is truly dystopian. Now, a lot of people are very keen to present you know, the pros and cons of technology. They'll talk about the inconveniences and the conveniences, the advantages and the disadvantages. You used the word harm previously, and I think, can we be specific here? I mean, what are the harms of these technologies? What
1: should we be actually calling out here? So, you know, I mean, I think there are some short-term and long-term harms. Uh, I think one of the, the problems or, or real harms of putting these systems in schools is that it normalizes a degree of surveillance that is not good for society, you know, and it, people have some difficulty when, when you talk about privacy because they think it's a very sort of classed assertion. Um, I disagree with that. You know, I think that private space uh, and the right to our own thoughts and ideas and the ability to determine who we're going to share that with without fear of, of repercussion uh, I think is sort of a bedrock foundational thing that's important to societies and the development of, of ourselves, right. And the understanding of who we are. I think that oppressive governments throughout history have uh always tried to infiltrate social movements and disrupt them, particularly the progressive movements, right. Whether that be the right for particular people to vote or gay marriage, or you name it, right. That, Almost all progressive movements um, throughout history, there are institutions who would invade people's privacy in order to disrupt those things. So I think normalizing surveillance is is harmful in that sense. Um, but also, uh, I think another really specific harm is that these systems are often very discriminatory in that there is a degree of sort of algorithmic judgment uh, about people that we're not able to investigate or challenge. And so there's assertions, you know, in the case of proctoring about what, who is, who's cheating, you know, and so something as simple as that can have severe consequences. I mean, there's a, there's an episode at at Dartmouth where, uh, the institution accused medical students of cheating on an exam based on their, um, how the LMS worked. So that can alter, you know, dare I say, ruin people's lives based on a a set of algorithmic judgments. And, you know, that's like a, that's one example. But in many ways, these systems uh often make assertions about who someone is, what they do, what their potential is, whether or not they are, again, maybe not even cheaters, but whether or not they may be criminal or um, have some desire or impulse towards extremism. And, uh, you know, and people are falsely implicated by these things often, you know. And often, too, that those those kinds of judgments often fall on already marginalized populations. That's just that this is a couple of ways. But in many cases, we are not allowed to interrogate the system that's making these assertions or assumptions about us. Um, we just get dealt the judgment that comes out.
0: Yeah, and even if we could interrogate the systems, it's often impossible to work out what's going on. I think a lot of this boils down to who these technologies are configured for. Mm-hmm. The end user or the customer, I don't think is the student or the teacher. Often I think these are technologies that are designed to be sold to institutions. Yeah. So the institution is the end user and the imagined kind of beneficiary. Students and teachers are just the subject. Mm-hmm. And I think if you, see it in the, if you see it in that way, then you suddenly you suddenly think, oh yeah, of course, that's why students and teachers are so routinely kind of disadvantaged and marginalized and harmed by these things
1: yeah and i think often institutions are looking for a degree of certainty that doesn't exist you know whether that's uh, about what a student is doing or what a student's capable of or to what degree a student might persist so when companies come to schools and say that you know promise that they can do these things whether or not they can i mean again like i like there's very little independent research that says that they can. Um, but it sounds good, right? And it, it that the promise of that is very compelling to institutions for a variety of reasons.
0: Absolutely. And in the research we did on online proctoring, the institutions were saying, we know this is crappy and doesn't work. But,
1: you know, it's just a, it's symbolic.
0: <laughs> it ticks a box.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> right. it's, it's more important to appear to, to be doing something, you know, than whether or not that thing is affecting.
0: Absolutely. Now, just a couple more questions, because I know we're running out of time. I'm fascinated by the reluctance to call out harms in EdTech. Uh, or maybe actually there's a reluctance in ed tech to listen to people who point out harms. <laughs> why Why is the, the, the field of ed tech so kind of pollyanna and doesn't want to hear any kind of bad news or criticism or pushback?
1: Oh, you know, I think there's a couple of reasons. I mean, one, I think some of these companies are very litigious. So you have to be very careful about what you say and who you say it about. You know, we've seen some, um, some really extreme examples of that in the past couple of years. Uh, I think the other thing is that there's an idea that you have to be an expert on these systems to, to critique them. Uh, you know, again, I, I don't agree with that, but many people are shouted down, you know, about say artificial intelligence or machine learning. If they don't know how to code, you know, I think that's very intentional on the part of the powerful right uh but you know it's daunting to to put yourself out there and say well this thing doesn't work but part of the problem again i mean uh, you know or part of the way i think about it is some of the the promises that are made are things that are actually not possible you know when we get into telling the future or you know making assertions about people's potential and things like that i think are really not possible Uh, but also people don't want to be seen as luddites You know. We live in a culture that lionizes innovation. And so that if in any way you're seen as an opponent of that, what you're seen as is as, as being a sort of an opponent of the future, right? <laughs> you're somehow... That you resist progress
0: a, a pro, an education is a very positive f- sphere where people are doing it for the best of intentions they want to make the world a better place they want to improve children's life chances to be seen to be not positive then is kind of it doesn't really fit well with the education side of things does it
1: yeah and i, I think too that we've been subjected to a myth you know from outside of education about how education has not changed in you know decades or centuries which i mean people inside education know that they're changing their pedagogy constantly um schools are places i mean they are, there are in some ways conservative institutions but um i think individually people alter and improve their pedagogy all the time which is a thing that people outside often don't recognize or or like to um, sort of uh, lampoon in, in ways that I think intentionally misunderstand what education is, is trying to do.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. I, I, actually, can we specifically double down on the racialized nature of ed tech? I mean, you've written that surveillance technology always finds its level, and that level is generally kind of focused on black folk. And there's a reluctance to call out harms in ed tech, but there's definitely a reluctance to call out racialized harms in ed tech, or at least listen to black critiques of ed tech. How do we change that? I mean, how do we kind of shift that dial?
1: I mean, I can offer some guesses. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, because, you know, speaking to a point that you made earlier, there's a, a way in which people think that harms to a small number of people or a particular marginalized, um, particular set of marginalized people can't be generalized. And so, I mean, I think there's two things wrong with that, that way of thinking. One is that, again, I, like, I think, Even small harms are harms or harms to small uh, number of people are harms. But the other thing I think people don't recognize is while I think it's true that many of these technologies will be leveraged first and mostly against marginalized or vulnerable populations, I think that eventually they harm everyone. And unfortunately, I found that that is one of the it's it's one of the only ways that you can convince people that this matters is that eventually it's going to to matter to them. So an example I use is that there's a particular technology that monitors uh, student uh, traffic on on devices, their emails, their texts, you know, their messages, you know, things like that, things they write in documents, in an effort to to they the company would say to look out for things like bullying. And potential for self-harm and things like that. This company also made the assertion that they could monitor teacher interactions in order to prevent strikes, right? To prevent unionizing and strikes. And so it's the, it's the, the case I make for all of these things. So if you, if you don't think it's a problem that, um, say black students, brown students, um, that gay and trans, lesbian, queer students right, will be harmed by these technologies. That's a problem, but it's also a problem because they, eventually they're going to be uh, leveraged against everyone else too. And I don't, I mean, I don't like that line of argument. Uh, you know, I, I, I'd i like to make a better argument, but it's actually one of the few things that moves people is to tell them that they're going to be next. <laughs> right? So, the, you know, I want to be like, completely on the record that harms to individuals or small, you know, like marginalized individuals should be in itself be enough reason to not do a thing. It's been my unfortunate experience that often people need more than that. And so what I've taken to telling people lately or pointing to uh, lately is examples of how that technology is going to be used against them as well.
0: And you also make the point that a lot of this technology is accepted by people who see themselves on the right side Mm -hmm. of the camera, the right side of the surveillance.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think we've seen that with uh, the rise of uh, white collar worker surveillance during the pandemic, particularly, you know. And so a lot of times uh, I think in education, instructors often don't think of themselves as workers. Uh, I mean, I think much to our detriment. But, you know, we've already started to see examples where institutions you know, learning institutions, K through 12 and college, are making assertions and, ass- and assumptions about how people, how instructors use their time when they're working from home. And so the the right end of the camera often, you know, or the microphone or whatever the biometric device is, right? The right end of the camera is that um, often educators think that it's them observing students, but they don't necessarily think about its administration observing them. Um, and applying some of these metrics to to them. And we've already seen examples of that. I think we'll see more of that. And I I think that the way to short-circuit that is to make sure that it's not done to anyone.
0: Which leads me on to my final optimistic question. We might be entering a period of grassroots pushback, protest, resistance against big tech, You know, the sentiment of fuck the algorithm and this kind of thing. Do you think that might hit education? And if so, what do we need to do to try and mobilize this sentiment to kind of have a sense of collective solidarity that we're all in this together? How can we foster a kind of solidarity in the face of education automation?
1: You know, I think um, what I often compare it to is the uh, the financial crash. There was a time that I didn't know what a credit default swap was because I didn't think I needed to. Uh, turns out I needed to. Right? <laughs> and so there are there are many people who are learning, you know, what algorithmic bias is or what an algorithm is or how facial recognition works, um, what machine learning is, the ways in which those things impact so many different aspects of our lives, you know, whether that's the kind of loan you're able to get, whether or not you're arrested or, you know, on and on and on and on what kind of hospital care you get. So I think if I'm if I'm press to offer some kernel of optimism that's where i see it which is that people are now starting to be much more aware of how these systems influence our lives and realizing that we don't necessarily need to be an expert on these systems to have expertise in how they affect us so people don't need to be experts in machine learning to, to understand like how these things are affecting people's lives and to the extent that that we can point those things out and we can and people can learn those things sort of provides opportunities for for pushback and resistance, uh, because I think what ha, what is new or different, or what's changed is that in the past, just in the past five or six years, we've seen the degree to which these systems touch so many aspects of our lives. And again, are, are often invisible to people except for the output.
0: And I think there's a real case for kind of public scholarship, making these things visible, talking about these things, saying these things out loud, which is exactly what you're doing. So, I mean, even things like your Twitter feed and press, we need more people like you to be kind of shining a light on these things. It's excellent. Well, thanks ever so much, Chris, for taking the time to do this. It's been really fascinating to, uh, really pleased to kind of catch up with you eventually. And um, yeah, I look forward to kind of learning more from you in the future.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for so much for having me.